And I see here it seems like these kids are just regurgitating Bible verses. I want to know if you really understand what it is that you are preaching. Yeah, I'd like to make up a reading comprehension test for you kids to see if they really. You're not on mic, so this, this student's an A know, could you student give me, in the school. Could you maybe give me a Bible verse? Oh, that doesn't mean interpret anything? it or something. Yeah, could you, yeah. could you preach for us and let us, and then tell us what it is you mean? Uh, biblically. Mm-hmm. Could you, Duffy, in could your you? Word. In your own word. But yeah. Preaching yeah, whatever you want to do. Okay. Well, there's a verse. There's a verse. You want him to preach? Yeah, yeah. Get up and preach. Yeah, go ahead. Stand up right where you are if you want to. Go ahead. Jeffy, do you want to preach? If you want to. If you don't want to, the audience shouldn't be able to intimidate you into this. If you want to do it, it's up to you. Wait just a minute. Wait just a minute, please. People want to know what that means that you just said. In your own word, tell us what does that mean? It means just what it says. No. Okay. Don't yell. Don't yell it to us. Tell us what what that means. I've never read the Bible. Let's pretend, and I don't understand that type of um, language. Tell me how, it, how that applies in my own life. Well, um, why I'm screaming is. Um, the Bible definition of preaching is Isaiah 58.1. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Stay away from the Bible, Duffy. How do you stay away from the Bible if you're going to preach, though? The Bible says you're to speak as the oracles of God. If you don't want to talk the way this Bible talks, you should keep your mouth shut. Okay, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma we still look, but you understand what people are saying. They want you to interpret what you just said, Duffy. The Bible says, does not interpretation belong to God? Genesis chapter 40. Read it. I understand that, David. What we're saying is, though, Duffy, do you understand what you just said? Could you put into your own words what you just said? Um. <laughs> yeah, I know what it means, but I just can't. Please let him speak. Yes. Um. means, um. Well, I know what it means, but it's just hard to understand. But you gotta um, realize that the prophets were out there saying, "Thus saith the Lord," and um, they didn't even know who who it was. They didn't understand what they were saying.
keeps trying to slip a finger in my bum, but I keep telling her I only let Jonesy's mom do that, you fucking loser. My mom would never put my finger in your bum. Mom, the fucking thing. Fuck your entire fucking oh. life, you piece of shit. Ray has gone bye-bye, you gun. What have you got left? Sorry, Beckman. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. This is tactically dangerous. Right. Funny how? I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you, I make you laugh, I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? And now, coming to you live from a podcast studio that fell off the back of a fucking truck, it's the Uppercut to the Gut Podcast with your hosts, the infallible D-dubs and the infamous El Guapo. All editorial comments, opinions, and are not necessarily reflective of the platform to which you are listening, you sensitive-ass mook motherfucker, you. Uppercut to the Gut podcast, cost of doing business with the church. For those of you who know me personally, and for those of you who don't, I'm just going to go and reiterate this anyway. I am not the support of religion guy. I was raised Catholic. My father's a Seventh-day Adventist. Fuck both those religions. Fuck them both. But religion in general, I've always had an issue with. I've had an issue with the idea of the only way to prove your love to something that never talks to you. Unless it's in the form of a schizophrenic hallucination. Sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. Cross yourself, prostrate, bow. Put money in the tithings plate. Get the fuck out. Here, have a sip of wine and bread on us. Oh, and if that's not your gig, why don't you blow yourself up? Blow yourself up in the name of a religion of peace. My number one nemesis, religion-wise, has been the three Abrahamic religions because of so much that they've done over time. The three Abrahamic religions are Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Those three religions have not had their shit together for so fucking long, and the rest of us have been living in the shadow of that shit for so fucking long. Don't get me wrong, I don't care what somebody does. I'm not out to get you if you have a certain belief. But the idea that governments or institutions, establishments, schools, universities, the workplace has to go and somehow make exception for religion is just completely out to lunch for me. The worst part is, too, is that when you call these things out, you get so much goddamn hate. You get so much goddamn hate for simply saying, I can't stand the thing that keeps killing people. I can't stand the thing that keeps killing people. What is all that? Why are you so upset, infallible one? What are you so upset about, infallible D-dubs? Well, look no further than what's been in the Canadian news headlines and continues to grow. Unmarked graves of Aboriginal children keep popping up on the grounds where uh, colonial residential schools used to be. So essentially what took place is, and there's a whole bunch of misinformation out there, people are trying to make their favorite political enemy now responsible for some shit that happened a long time ago. That's absurd. It's fucking bullshit. The very first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, was aware that there is going to be a colonial residential school system built and created, ran by the Catholic Church, overseen by the Vatican, with educational curriculum approved by the Catholic Church. And that residential school served one purpose and one purpose only. That was to go and take Aboriginal kids away from their parents under the guise that the old ways of living and the culture of the Aboriginal 
was uncivilized and savage in nature, and that these children had to be taken away it was the rightful thing to do, and it would be the work of God to go and take these children away and raise them in the image of the European colonial system, which has been since abandoned. Got abandoned by the, the, the people that created the colonial system, abandoned the colonial system. But over here in Canada, motherfuckers were holding on to that shit like a fucking anklet on a fat girl, holding on for dear life, trying to hold on to those old colonial days. That regal shit, trying to go and get a wink and a nod from Her Majesty. I gotta say, I'm pissed about it. I'm pissed, and if you're pissed about it, you got a fucking right to be. These kids were taken away from their parents. Decades and decades of allegations that went missing. Police files and police witness accounts and reports are now coming to light about the details of sexual assault at the hands of nuns, at the hands of preachers, uh, past, uh, sorry, Catholic priests, and even against each other because kids sometimes turn on each other. Physical abuse, mental abuse, rape, pedophilia, mums the word from the Vatican. Mums the word. Pope ain't want to go and do nothing about it. He ain't, I mean, he acknowledged it, but doesn't issue an apology. Because God forbid the, the Vatican should be wrong. God forbid it should be wrong in something it did. It has to be because it's perfect, right? The Vatican is perfect. That's fucking bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. They know it. You know it. I know it. We all fucking know it. Unmarked graves. Can you imagine your child vanishes? Is buried. No headstone. But apparently... Apparently the Catholic Church, you know, those sacrament folks, like those are the same folks that one of the sacraments is anointing of the sick, last rites. I wonder, did those kids get their last rites? Or did you just whip the shit out of that kid to death and then just bury it in the ground, you sick fuck? These sick fucks are out here. And some of those fucking same people that are responsible or people that were aware of it but did nothing about it, they're walking around here today. Today's episode, we're going to talk about the cost of doing business with the church. We're going to talk about how religion goes and makes a whole bunch of money off of you dumb suckers anyway. They make a bunch of money off you dumb suckers, but they ain't ready to go and reparate this shit. They don't even want to answer for these unmarked graves. I got to say, I'm pissed. I, am not, I have no aboriginal blood, not a drop in me. But I'm pissed looking at this shit. And you should be pissed too even if this doesn't affect you. Because it does. The Catholic institution is important to so many people. The institution of marriage, baptism, confirmation, the anointing of the sick, your last rites, confession. All these things are so fucking important to so many people. And if you're one of those people that grew up in the Catholic system, there's no way you could possibly look at this. And accept that the Vatican is just simply saying, meh, meh, meh. I, I mean, it, I, sure, it happened, but, uh, I mean, it wasn't me. I wasn't there for that. Nah, you belong to an institution, motherfucker. You know what we used to do to motherfuckers that used to sell hooch? They used to sell moonshine, used to have stills. 
We charged them in America. They got charged with RICO. They got a RICO charge. That meant everybody involved, including the little kid that used to sweep up around the fucking still for moonshine, under the prohibition laws of the 1920s, all those motherfuckers went to jail. We charged everybody involved as part of a criminal conspiracy. And right now, the Catholic Church is behaving like it's a part of a criminal conspiracy. Not acknowledging it. Shifting blame. Trying to get us to go and look elsewhere. Sometimes even just outright stonewalling. And that's bullshit. That's bullshit and you know it. Right, first and foremost, I want to go and reach out because my last episode, Positive Vibes, felt kind of good to unplug for a little bit. Uh, I acknowledged folks in Brazil. And I know that Brazil is very, very overtly Catholic. And I know I got a lot of listeners there. And I'm sorry if you feel offended. Uh, and I'm not trying to attack your beliefs. I'm trying to attack an institution right now that knows what it did. It knows damn well what it did and did nothing about it. It did nothing about it and it doesn't want to do anything about it. And that's fucking wrong. Let me remind you that this is the same institution that tries to go and tell us that we have to confess our sins. We have to confess our sins to a dude that can see us but can't. we can't see them. You know, like God. You go in there, you go into the confessional, you tell them everything wrong that you did. Shouldn't that same institution uphold its own beliefs? Shouldn't it uphold its own tenets? Should the Catholic Church not come on out here and be real with us? Should it not be honest? The details are fucking awful. The details of what these residential schools, some of them are alive today still. The details of what these residential school survivors are talking about. About penises in their mouths and it was a pastor. About being stripped naked and made to walk in certain ways by nuns. About being spanked, stripping down to their clothes and being spanked with a meter stick by nuns. It's fucking sick. It's fucking sick. And the fact that that Catholic institution is fucking protecting itself. The fact it's protecting these motherfuckers that it won't even acknowledge what it did. We've already been through this before. Going back for the last 15 to 30 years, people have been coming forward. Altar boys have been coming forward since the late night or mid to late 90s. They've been coming forward, making all kinds of allegations of, uh, there's been allegations of pastors, uh, uh, Catholic priests, and deacons, and archbishops doing whatever. They got that vow of celibacy. Let the priests fuck already so that they stop taking it out on our damn kids. Jesus. Or better yet, shut down this whole fucking institution. QAnon, y'all are all fucked up. You're out there trying to go and blame uh, pedophilia on, on the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton. You guys are nuts. The real fucking, the real fucking perpetrator has been right in front of you all this whole time. You might have even been in the presence of one of them. But you thought the church is good. And so that's it. This is unbelievably out to lunch. How anybody could even remain in the same religion. How anyone could remain in the same institution. 
and not want to hold that institution accountable. America has been held accountable for slavery to, to a point. There was a war over it. 400,000 people died, millions injured, 2 million injured permanently. There was a war over slavery. The fuck are you going to do about the Catholic Church shaking its head and saying, no, 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 those aren't, no, no. We're so far at five residential schools have been excavated and searched. Five schools. And we're at over 1,300 bodies. There's thousands of these schools. What the fuck else are we going to find? Because this is starting to sound like genocide. This is starting to sound like an ethnic cleansing, which the history books basically point to it as. You ain't going to go and look at what happened to Aboriginal people, the, the American, Native American, Aboriginal, Indian, however it is that they've been addressed throughout history. Nobody got a shittier deal than them. Even Chris Rock in 1999 in a stand-up comedy said, you ain't never seen two Indians stand together? You ever seen them just like walking down the street being like, hey, what's up? No, no, you don't. Those bounties were put on their head to just take scalps. Kill as many as you can, come back, take scalps. Take scalps, bring them back as proof. That's what the American Aboriginal Native American has been subjected to. That's what the Canadian has been subjected to. If it wasn't scalps... That it was, let's kill their way of life. Let's murder every fucking buffalo out here. Let's go and sh just shoot every animal we possibly can for fun. Just for fun. Because we can. Because we got the lead. Let's just do it. Sick fucks. Sick fucking fucks. Makes me wonder how anybody could know that this thing happened. There's the thousands of allegations from altar boys, Sisters of Mary, the various different clubs and church organizations and leagues that have had children over the years being abused at the hands of these supposed community leaders. They're out here. They're trying to go and tell us something. For the longest time, we fucking ignored it. It's almost ridiculous that only until hundreds of bodies of children appear that anybody even gives a shit. And even to that, they didn't. There's already a right-wing conspiracy thread going around that, oh, we always knew that the graves were there. They were just unmarked, and that's bad. But we knew about it this entire time, so it was no surprise. Listen, you fucking dumb fuck. Even if that's the case... Even if that were the case and you knew where the bodies were, why are there so many dead kids outside of a school? Buried out back. Like you bury the family dog. I'm pissed. I'm pissed. I'm pissed that I was raised Catholic now. I go back and I think I'm like, I think about these deacons and these priests and shit. Gave me my first communion. I wonder where those fucking fingers were. Makes me sick to my fucking stomach. I want to know when those deacons and those archbishops used to come down to the Catholic school that I attended. Kind of makes me wonder. The fuck were they doing? What the fuck were they doing there? Because here's the thing. They're either sex offenders or they knew about sex offenders. And they did nothing. They did nothing. 
fucking sad fucking time. But it's not even a sad time because it's always been this sad. It's not just a bad news story. It's not just a bad news story. This isn't a one-off thing that happened. This, how long does it take to kill a bunch of kids, that many kids, to put them in their grave? How long does it take? Takes years, takes time. Unless you're doing some crazy, like, Hitler shit where you're just lining motherfuckers up and mowing them down. Then you can get that much done in a short period of time. But nah, that, the unmarked graves, we're seeing that some of these are years apart, decades apart. The survivors are able to go and tell us. I gotta go and say straight up right now, as someone who's, you know, been through Canada and stuff. I personally feel like a sack of shit. I personally feel like a sack of shit. Because there's been so many times where I've seen either drunk or high or whatever. I've seen that Aboriginal person in Canada that just looks so disturbed and I can't figure out why. And I never once even bothered. I mean, I never knew. And this is why I feel like such a sack of shit. I never once bothered to go and compare my judgments of their behavior to what might have happened to them in the past. Or what trauma happened to their parents or their grandparents and the habits that got passed down. We're going to look at this a little bit more. We're going to get into how much money churches are making. We're going to get into why you shouldn't give any money to the church. Why the church should be taxed if you are going to give money to the church. We're going to get into a lot of some of the, the ins and outs. Because like the episode title says, there is a cost of doing business with the church. In this case, the tithings of the past paid for the institutionalization and murder of children in the present of a time immemorial. That's worth looking into. It's not just the Spanish Inquisition anymore. I want to know. I want to know if those kids got their last rights. I want to know. I want to know if the institution even bothered doing that. Or did they just say, oh shit, we did it again. Uppercut to the gut podcast. Guess we'll get into this. I, I mean... It's with a heavy heart that I say we'll get into this, but let's try to work this out together, okay? Well, I bet it gets lonely in heaven 
gets lonely in heaven I bet that God sings the blues <laughs> Jesus Christ, Muhammad, L. Ron Hubbard All of them started their own religion They attracted millions of followers and became powerful beyond belief So why can't you? This is Epic How To to start your own religion, you need to create a belief system. If you can fill in the blanks of the following sentences, you should have the basic tenets of your religion. The best way to live your life is blank. When you die, you go to blank. The one true vessel of God is, insert religious figure here. Those are some pretty big blanks to fill. You probably don't have a definite answer, and let's be honest, no one does. So why not have your religion piggyback off of an existing religious faith? Almost all of the successful religious movements from the last few hundred years have been offshoots of existing religions. And of all those new religious movements, the most have sprung forth from Christianity. Take Mormonism, which is pretty much just Christianity, but with Joseph Smith at the helm. Or the Christian scientists, who add the anti-medicine writings of founder Mary Baker Eddy to basic Christian tenets at no extra cost. Or the Westboro Baptist Church, which was Fred Phelps' way of answering the question, can Christianity be a little more hateful? Now, with Christianity as your foundation, the sky's the limit for your religion. Every religion has a symbol to identify themselves, like the Christian cross or the star and crescent of Islam. And since you can't compete with their thousands of years of brand recognition, why not modify a pre-existing popular symbol? Unfortunately, you're not gonna be able to use the logos of Apple, Nike, Coca-Cola, or any other instantly recognizable symbols without being sued. However, you can use the recycling logo. It's public domain and royalty free, and it's one of the top 10 most well-known logos in the world. Now that you have your religion, you need to find your followers. 71% of Americans who embrace new religions do so between 18 and 24 years of age, so you should appeal to the youth demographic. Studies show that social media is the biggest single influencer in the lives of millennials, so you should base your religion on that. Studies also show that people enduring high levels of stress are the most susceptible to the promises of happiness and fulfillment that religion can provide. Make sure your religion provides salvation for the tired and the overworked. Your social media-themed Christianity offshoot religion will have stressed out millennials ready to follow you to the ends of the earth. But where can you find these young, poor, unfortunate souls? Why, the City of Angels, Los Angeles. It has the highest concentration of cults and religions in the country. Every day, young people move there with big dreams and an even bigger sense of desperation. They're often easy prey for belief systems that promise happiness and spiritual fulfillment, like yours. You've established your base. Now you need to go national. Targeting a bigger religion will bring your religion a lot of free publicity. Take the American Atheists. In 2013, the group made major headlines by putting up billboards in Times Square, encouraging people to give up the myth of Christ. All the attention led to a huge increase in interest in atheism, with Google searches for the term atheism more than doubling during the incident. Can't afford a Times Square billboard? Put up a monument to your religion on city property. That's what Satanists did in Oklahoma. Will it ruffle some feathers and get taken down? Of course, but the publicity is priceless. A house of worship seems essential to any religion, but how can you compete with the history, majesty, and grandeur of those hundreds of years old cathedrals? Good news, you don't have to. Hundreds of churches operate solely online. The Universal Life Church has grown steadily on the web for decades. Your flock of millennials spends most of their time online anyway. Now, let's get to the best part of having your own religion, the tax benefits. Filing for the 501c3 lets you gain tax-exempt status, meaning your religion doesn't have to pay taxes. Sweet! 
That's right, not a single cent. Any money donated to your religion is yours to keep and use as you wish. The only catch is that your religion's income can't go directly to a private individual and that it can't be used to influence legislation. Yeah, right. So don't funnel your money to your mom and don't talk about politics and you're all set. Conclusion. Look at you. You're now the leader of the profitable Christian social media-ists. Who says there's no more miracles in the world? <laughs>
and pushing extremist rhetoric while foaming menstrual blood from the mouth. Lady Gaga has been a total smoke show this past week, and in true Mike Tyson fashion, Olympic boxer Eunice Bala chomps on his opponent, David Nikudis. In his defense, I'm not gonna lie, sometimes, when feeling somewhat famished in the middle of a brawl, there's nothing like a good, chewy, cartilage-filled ear to get you back in the zone. Speaking of raw fish, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics continues to be an epic disaster from local COVID outbreaks to Olympic teams being fined for refusing to wear bikinis and mental breakdowns. The lowest rated sports event has truly made the case for abortion. Even the US men's basketball team played total crap games, losing an eight point lead on several occasions. The coach of the US men's basketball team blames the work-orientated, sex-crazed, desperate Japanese women draining the team's stamina as the entire Japanese male population logged into anime porn sites and played role-playing games for the duration of the Olympics. In other news, in other news, Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers and Dua Lipa dipped a dummy dill pickled dip dickhead named Da Baby. The Billboard Music top-charted pop star Dua Lipa expressed disgust towards cornball fuckboy rapper DaBaby, who at a recent Rolling Stone Music Fest called out to the audience asking, and I quote, Ladies, if your pussy smell like water, put your cell phone lighters up. And if you a nigga that's never sucked a dick, put your cell phone lighters up. The blatant display of homophobia greatly shocked and disturbed pop star Dua Lipa to the surprise of many in the hip-hop community. As they asked Dua Lipa, didn't you know? The boys in the hood are always hard. And that was in the news. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. You come talking that trash, we'll pull your car. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't said shit. <laughs>
to the gut podcast a little bit of an editorial retraction i made a mistake at the top of the session i uh i referred to the title of this episode as the cost of doing business the church the church is relevant it's not that uh the real title as you see on your spotify or apple Podcasts, or however whatever platform you're listening to us on is called the cost of doing business with god and there's a reason for that. So uh, if I said uh, the cost of doing business with the church, it might have been because I had something in mind because I kind of got this issue. Like we're talking about the unmarked graves earlier. And we're going to get back into that in a little bit. But I think that first we got to go and get a crystal clear understanding that anytime God is involved, money and stupidity typically follow. In fact, anytime that somebody holds something of value, whether it be ethically, whether it be a, an inanimate object. It breaks down to this. There's only three real ways to get something of value into your possession. Now, one of them is generosity. If somebody just decides to give you this thing of value and they choose of their own free will and accord to just go and give it to you. The other way is persuasion. You have to convince them to give it to you. And the third way is by force. You got to take it. Taking it requires a lot of effort and a lot of work. And when you're dealing with masses of people, the masses typically do not like it. They really don't. When a force comes in, even if they respect said force and herald said force and believe in said force, they hate it when things come on in and start taking their valuables, whether it be money or gemstones or jewels or property or shares in some type of a market. It doesn't matter whatever it is. 
Persuasion typically has more success than by force. Every time. Because people resist force. You put a gun in my head, give me your money. Well, that's just a robbery. That's just a robbery. And you pull off enough robberies, you're going to eventually come across somebody who's going to pull a gun back on you after a while because people will figure out the pattern. You can't keep taking shit from motherfuckers. You can't just keep taking their shit. They're going to revolt. They're going to rebel. Generosity, now that's hit and miss. You can sit there and talk nicely to somebody and try to explain a concept and say this is important because. But after a while, even that, I mean, generosity or giving to a cause or a reason, you still almost have to ask for something, but the charitable outreach of somebody, that, that might not fly either. It's hit and miss. It's like a 5 to 10% chance that everything you need and want is just going to be given to you, handed over. Force and generosity. Ah, They're difficult. One is rare and the other is... Well, it's caveman-like. Nobody likes it. Nobody respects it when you try to take shit by force. They might fear it for a while, but, I mean, everybody feared Al Capone. Where the fuck is he now? There's no continuity of what he had going on. His regime is not still in power. Someone else took over, and then someone else after that. And then it's not even really there anymore. Persuasion is a big deal. Getting you to give me your valuables, to give me your money, to give me your monetary status, to break off a percentage so that I can live requires expert con job here. An expert delving into the world of persuasion and coercion vis-a-vis enter religion. Anytime somebody believes in something, I mean, if they really believe in it, if they really believe in this shit to the core, or if they even fear the possibility of it being real, they'll give in. They'll give in. Well, I don't know if this God is real, but I see a lot of people are into it, so I think I should probably hop on board. That's that sheep mentality, the herd mentality. You can find that every Sunday. You can find that five times a day, prostrating, facing east in random locations. You can find that on a Saturday in certain churches. You can find that in various different religious circles. And what's num- there, there is actually a fourth way to go and get the valuables, to get the currency, to get the cash, to get the coin, to get the living that you need to survive and manipulate people into doing so. It's a hybrid between persuasion and and force. You see, force relies on fear. The fear of being struck. The fear of being shot. The fear of death. Now imagine for a second that there's a group of a hundred people and they all have more than enough. You need to survive. You gotta eat. You need clothing, food, shelter, all the things that you need, the basics of survival. And a little comfort and fun would be nice too. There's one way to do it. Now, if you use force, that means fear and intimidation. But what if you could strike fear into the hearts of ordinary people without ever having to show the gun, without ever having to pull the knife, without ever having to come in numbers and intimidate people? Well, the way that you could do that is you got to get into their head. You got to get into their head and make them fear fear itself. 
We all, we've all heard that phrase, the only thing to fear is fear itself. That's literally what religion is. Religion is the fear of the unknown. The fear of an absolute and the fear of an unknown. You don't know what's going to happen after you die. What you do know is you're born, you live, you die. There's some ups and downs in between. But after death, because we all fear death, you get eviscerated by a tiger, that's pain. Death can be painful. Nine times out of ten, death is painful. A heart attack sucks. Go and ask somebody who's had a stroke or a brain aneurysm. They're going to go and tell you, fucking sucks. It's painful. So all you got to do is just start by instilling fear. Fear of death, which is inevitable. We all try to preserve our own life and liberty and maintain being alive. But then on the other side of things, it's, it, it's what happens after death. You go and you create the afterlife. The belief in an afterlife is central to over 67% of all religious entities and institutions. You create an afterlife. What is the media? You ask these questions like we heard about creating your own religion, that little segment earlier. What's the meaning of my life? What happens after I die? And what's the best way to live? You, you go and you ask those three questions. You're set. Well, there's something that the Catholic Church used to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not focusing solely on the Catholic Church. I'm just saying that the Catholic Church has perfected the business of fear and money. I mean, they're billionaires over there. They don't live like billionaires, but they're in possession of a lot of money and power. They got a lot of money and power and influence over there. The fact that the president of the United States typically sits down with the Pope at least once per, per term in each administration. Prime minister and presidents of every country from all around the world. They come there, they go to the Vatican, or the Pope visits abroad and they meet with that world's leader. They sit there and, and they listen to basically what the Pope has to say. What is it with the Pope anyway? What's the Pope? The Pope is essentially what we're supposed to believe anyway, that he's perfect. The institution is perfect because the Pope speaks for God. And even though it was a literal election, literally an election inside an internal election, didn't even involve the people. It's not democratic. An election inside the Vatican between bishops, popes, deacons, priests, whatever, wherever they're the, the archbishops, etc., that upper echelon of power, they determine who the guy is that's going to speak for God. And because of this process, allegedly, whatever the Pope says is the word of the Lord. Because God will be on the favorable side of the people who vote for the Pope. So it kind of makes me wonder. If the Pope is perfect, and the, his policies are perfect, and the institution is perfect, but we got like pedophilia and rape and a bunch of dead kids showing up in graves... The fuck does that say about God if that's your model? What does that say about God if you believe in God and you believe that it's real and you happen to be Catholic? What is the existence of the Pope's policies, his lack of apology for this fucked up scenario? What does that tell you? We got to get back to the roots here. You got to understand what's really at stake. This isn't about God. This isn't about belief or your individual faith. This isn't about how many times you say the rosary or you go to confession. The shit that's happening in the news here is not about those kids either. The residential colonial schools is also not about what took place there. It's not about the aboriginal kids. It's not about anything here. It's about money and power. The two things that people have been in pursuit of since time immemorial. Number one being power. And how? what's one way to get power? 
It's just like getting money. Persuasion. Let's start with that persuasion. Let's take a look at this. How the church persuaded people. I mean, there's a lot of... You used to be able to buy your way out of the concept that the Catholic Church created called purgatory. By giving money to the church, you could get out of purgatory. Entire centuries passed with this belief. Hundreds, thousands of years passed with people believing that you can give money to the church or even give up your own goddamn kids, which is really fucked up. But we're going to take a look at this. Check, check, check this one out. Let's take a look at how the church used fear to instill its power and take control of both money and continuity through your children. Check this out. In medieval Europe, the Catholic Church held a level of power and influence over the population that is almost inconceivable today. This power came from a combination of factors, including persuasion, corruption, and coercion, but most of all, straight-up fear-mongering. Yes, the medieval church was heavily invested in the business of scaring the faithful into staying faithful. Today, we're going to take a look at how the medieval Catholic Church frightened its parishioners into obedience. Let's see some self-punishment for having done wrong. We're going medieval on you. These days, when people hear the term Hellmouth, they're most likely to think of the television series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if they think of anything at all. Indeed, modern visitors to medieval churches and cathedrals would probably regard the frightening sculpted images appearing over the entryway as mere art or ornamentation. But for the populace of the medieval era, who were superstitious and uneducated, the image of the Hellmouth was nothing short of terrifying. The Hellmouth was typically depicted as a ferocious beast devouring sinners during the Last Judgment. It was the first thing that parishioners would see on their way into the sanctuary, and the message was crystal clear. Obey the church, or this will happen to you. Wow, they were very, very subtle. See what I'm talking about? Right there already. The Hellmouth. The concept of living in agony in real life every day sucks. Torture sucks. Pain sucks. Emotional uh, torment sucks. Mental cruelty sucks. Some type of punishment such as holding something heavy or, or having shit taken or extracted from you physically. It sucks. Nobody wants torment. So the idea of creating this realm in which torment is eternal. If you got some really dumbed down people, they're gonna go for it, my friend. But it's not just dumbed down people because you have to understand that a lack of education, things like being illiterate from medieval times, hence the term the Dark Ages, moving up from the Renaissance all through the Dark Ages, then even up till now, typically people who are illiterate, people who can't read, or people that can't comprehend what they read. You ever notice that they're usually the first to go when it comes down to doing dumb shit? They're the first to go when it comes down to doing dumb shit all the motherfucking time. So of course, why would your ancient Christian ancestors not fall for something like the Hellmouth? A demon that looks like some kind of a piranha shark or a whale goes around just chomping you, just blop, 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 eats you like a fucking troggle. All motherfucking, just... All motherfucking day, just chews on you. Just chews it all up. All day, just fucking chews on you. Just chews it all up. Chews on you over and over and over. Somehow you never die. It's that kind of dumb fuckery that had people from jump falling for this shit. So how do I avoid the hellmouth? How do I avoid a lake of fire? How do I avoid torment? 
Purgatory, in the Catholic religion, is an intermediate state that comes after death where people can expiate their sins before moving on to heaven. In medieval times, churchgoers were extremely concerned about how much time they might have to spend there. Luckily, there were several ways a person could ensure their wait wouldn't be overly long. For example, they could donate money and goods to the church, attend services regularly, or even purchase a certificate that could get them an early release. But for those who absolutely, positively had to be sure they would skip purgatory entirely, there was only one surefire way, donate one of their children to the church. In ancient times, religions may have demanded human sacrifice to appease their gods. But the medieval church had a more pragmatic use for these children, namely, replenishing their own numbers. The clergy, of course, is supposed to be celibate, so new priests, nuns, and monks had to be recruited from the general population. While these new recruits didn't have to be children, the church preferred them because they were easier to mold. Hmm, didn't the families miss their children? Certainly. But in an era where poverty was common and many already had too many mouths to feed, there was no real choice. What's more, the arrangement could actually wind up being beneficial to everyone involved. For the child, being raised by the church would mean eating better, staying cleaner, and receiving an education. For the parents, the arrangement meant saving money and resources that could be spent on the rest of the family. However, while being raised by the church meant having a full belly, a warm place to sleep, and an education, there was also, predictably, a much darker side to the practice. Many children are known to have been victimized by church leaders in a number of inappropriate ways. Accounts of those who found themselves trapped in a miserable, abusive existence within the church have survived to this very day. You know, a lot of times I find myself being real harsh on Islam because it hasn't reformed. The Catholic Church did go through something called a reformation. The Anglican Church historically went through a major reforming or changing period. Uh, Islam hasn't done that yet, but let's face it, medieval principles used to be really, really strictly enforced in the Catholic Church. But we still, we still follow up with these fucking things. Our old, it, I mean, it used to be a thing. If you were Catholic all through the 60s and 70s and you grew up, you know, I mean, my own mom, she used to, you know, there was a lot of respect given if you were an altar boy or a sister of Mary or one of those little whatevers that follows the nuns, whatever the fuck that is. I don't even give a fuck anymore. There used to be, you used to think it was a good thing. It was a nice thing that you did. It was nice. It was good. It meant you were a good person. You came from a good family. You went to church every Sunday. This fuckery right here dates back to medieval principles. All you're doing every time you pay your tithes, give up your kids for Sunday school, is just indoctrination all over again. But there it is right there. You can buy your way out of hell by giving money to the church. Which gets right back to the persuasion. The fear of death and the fear of the eternal torment. The purgatory, the hellmouth, the lake of fire. Whatever new thing comes up. And if they stop fearing that, you just create something new. On top of that, even somewhat wealthy people in medieval times were still illiterate. They couldn't read. They had to have things read to them. Hence the term wise man or scholar. You needed a scholar to come to you to read the scrolls, to read the tablets, to read the good book and interpret it for you. So now your perspective, your interpretation has been controlled by somebody. You've given up your money. And if you were poor, you tried to save your own ass 
by giving up your fucking kid because condoms didn't exist and you can't stop sticking your dick in some vagina. You can't stop. You can't put your Peter in your pants. You think men are out of control now? Shit. What do you think it was like in medieval fucking times? It was understood that the only time that you engage in sexual intercourse is for the purpose of having a baby. That's it. There's no such thing as abortions back in medieval times, unless you wanted thine medieval coat hanger. But even outside of that, it really wasn't a thing. You were a woman, you had sex, you got pregnant. That was it. You had a baby, you raised the baby. That was your job. The church enforced this idea. The more children there were, the more likely you were, especially if you're poor, to give one of them up to the clergy. Kind of makes you wonder, especially since what we heard there, that the toxic and abusive relationships and the fucked up shit, desperate children being forced to rise in the church. Kind of makes you wonder, how many unmarked graves are there in the Vatican? How many in the gardens and their grounds there? I wonder how many kids are buried somewhere. I bet there's a lot. I bet there's some massive mass graves over there in Europe, but I ain't got no proof, and I'm not making no allegations. All I'm just saying is, is that clearly this whole thing of giving up children to the church, it never seemed to go away. Because here we are talking as early as the the late 1800s and early 1900s, all the way up through the 60s and 70s, and we're seeing the same shit. The church taking or being given children in place of blood sacrifice. At least with the blood sacrifice of the Mayans and the Incans and the Aztecs, the Babylonians, Sumerians, Assyrians, and Egyptians, and even the early Kabbalists and the early Babylonians, the early uh, Abraham sacrificed his own damn son, at least in those cases you knew that that's where it ended. But in this case, in place of blood sacrifice, it's now, what, this child is eternally tortured instead of you? That was a belief. The bullshit continues. To most modern observers, seeing a statue weep would be greeted by immediate skepticism. One might suppose the statue had been cracked and taken on water from some outside source. Or perhaps deception was involved and some devious person placed a water hose inside the statue to create an illusion. Seeing a statue weep blood might make one suspect something rusty was leaking onto it. Yet even today we hear reports of people witnessing statues they believe are crying real tears or bleeding real blood. Often they believe these tears are sent by Christ or some other heavenly figure. So you can imagine how easily the overwhelmingly superstitious and religious population of medieval days would have easily accepted such a sight. Indeed, weeping and bleeding statues were commonly considered powerful omens of evil or sad events to come, an interpretation that was quite useful for a church seeking to encourage continued obedience. While you'd probably think there's no way to buy oneself out of having committed terrible sins, you'd be dead wrong. In the medieval era, as much as today, the church was quite fond of money, and the faithful could actually buy forgiveness with cash. If enough money was involved, nothing was unforgivable. Even more convenient was that you could purchase a pardon in advance for something you hadn't even done yet. Plan to rob or kill someone? No problem. Just buy yourself an advance pardon and have a good time. It was a great arrangement for those who could afford it, and it made the church a fortune. Call it your get-out-of-jail card for the afterlife. One of the church's other biggest moneymakers was selling tickets out of purgatory, and you could purchase one not just for yourself, but also for your deceased loved ones. 
worried that your parents or grandparents have been denied entrance to heaven and are trapped in purgatory? No problem. Purchase the pardon card. For the right price, the church would literally issue you an actual physical certificate that proved your loved one was on the way to heaven. The pardon card. Don't leave life without it. Some things never change. For example, adulterers in medieval times feared pretty much the same exact things modern ones do, namely getting caught. These days, a revelation like that would probably lead to couples therapy or possibly a divorce. But in the medieval era, that kind of exposure would mean being made an object of public shaming and ridicule. In fact, the term walk of shame originated in that era and was meant quite literally. Accused adulterers might be required to walk nude through the streets under the ridicule of friends and neighbors. Game of Thrones fans are probably thinking of Queen Cersei's famous walk of shame right about now, which was based directly on this real-life practice. Not surprisingly, despite this heavy punishment, adultery remained popular. For some, the shame is part of the game. The aforementioned Hellmouth sculptures that hung over the church doors were an effective mood-setter, but they were only the beginning. Once inside the church, the parishioner would be graded by images of the end of the world, the Last Judgment, and so-called doom paintings, which depicted the faithful rejoicing with God in heaven, while the sinners boiled in a lake of fire. That's not all, though. Churches were often filled with altarpieces, statues of tortured saints, and all manner of other images of sinners being punished in hell. The church employed the greatest artists of the day to create these works, and those artists often had vivid and terrifying imaginations. For the medieval church, the need to keep a grip on their power and influence was rivaled only by the drive to make money. Church officials at all levels were primarily concerned with selling get-out-of-purgatory certificates. They also enjoyed spreading the word about how working for the church would ensure your social position on earth and reserve you a spot in heaven. This fixation on profit went so far, parishioners were often warned that any and all expendable income they came into possession of should be given directly to the church. Depending on a person's social status, contributions could come in various forms. If you were poor, you could give livestock or whatever coins you were able to spare. Upper and middle class families, and yes, there was a burgeoning middle class at this point, were also under a great deal of pressure to give. Examples of what such people might donate to stay in the church's good graces include silver candlesticks, linen altar cloths, or even a church pew. The extremely wealthy might even donate something as expensive as an ornate altarpiece or stained glass window, which might depict holy figures along with members of the donor's family. Medieval cathedrals were often enormous, elaborate buildings, and the fact that many still stand today is a testament to human mastery of architecture, physics, and masonry. These buildings often took several generations to fully construct, and villages and cities would rise up around them. Building a cathedral was difficult and dangerous, but also allowed for an unparalleled level of artistic creativity. For example, the original builders would often carve their own faces into the statuary and motifs on display both inside and outside the buildings. Despite this freedom, the sculptors and masons had to work within the artistic styles favored by the church. This included imagery of Jesus, Mary, and the saints, but also would typically include figures of demons and gargoyles on the building's exterior. These figures would often be depicted near doorways or high up on spires. This way, they could cast their unnerving gazes down upon the sinners entering the church, inspiring them to seek forgiveness and stay obedient. Despite all the fear-mongering the church engaged in to keep their parishioners in line, there are always those who just don't care. 
Whether because they didn't believe in it or simply felt an eternity of punishment was a fair price for the sins they sought to engage in, the medieval era had plenty of folks who frequently skipped church services. Some preferred to spend their time drinking, gambling, visiting prostitutes, and some just like sleeping late. Whatever the case, sins like these were punishable offenses. However, as you may have guessed, these sins were absolutely forgivable if the right financial price was paid to the church. And since a failure or refusal to pay the fine constituted a one-way ticket to hell, most people paid up. And there you have it. The psychopathy of the medieval church still to this day influences your daily habits as a Catholic or a Christian. The fear of a torment-filled eternity. Architecture of a grandiose nature depicting fear and demons while at the same time at the higher reaches, icons, uh, Byzantine Rite-style images of happiness and joy in heaven, the cherubim, the halos, the stations of the cross. Get into a confessional. Say everything bad that you did. A walk of shame as an adulterer. All of these things, all forgiven with money. All your sins and everything you're about to do or have done, all forgivable based on the percentile of your financial contribution. The Church of Scientology does something very similar. 75% of all income is managed by the Church of Scientology. Who's a famous Scientologist? Tom Cruise. Look at how wealthy Tom Cruise is. And Latin pop star uh, Mark Anthony, John Travolta, all three of them very famous Scientologists. Can you imagine how much play the Church of Scientology has there? That fucking nut, L. Ron Hubbard, getting a bunch of, selling a bunch of books, Dianetics. Just a bunch of stupid shit that they're into. Just dumb shit. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormons. They do something very similar with finance management. Why does the existence of the church in whatever form, the church, the mosque, the synagogue, the tabernacle, the what, the, the, the fucking temple, the guru, the whatever. Why does religion continually boil down to financial contribution? If you haven't asked yourself this question, why is paying tithings a thing? Why is there a collection plate? And the church is getting real worried right now because with the rise of telecommunications, social media, the ability to go and communicate several ideas, sometimes hundreds at a time, church attendance is down. And they're getting fucking worried. Church attendance is down. And that means that the collection plate is looking a little fucking thin. The envelopes. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like in Casino. When they, the, uh, Remo there, the, the, the Kansas City boss there, Remo. And the whole, the whole mob there. When they start to see that the envelopes coming from, uh, coming from Nicky Santoro are lighter and lighter because he's getting wild. He's just doing a bunch of drugs, fucking hookers, fucking with people's lives and like shooting people up and shit. Trying to just live the life of a wild ass cowboy boss in Las Vegas in the 60s, 70s. It's that moment. The envelopes just kept getting lighter and lighter and then eventually there was almost nothing there. And it, they, they were offended. The church is the same fucking way. The church is just like the fucking mafia. When those envelopes start getting lighter, they start getting a little pissed off. So what's one way that you can now, in the present day, go and motivate people to start attending again? 
We're seeing it in the, uh, not so much with the Catholic Church, but we're seeing it with things like the Westboro Church. We're seeing it in some of these smaller church communities that are growing and they're online. They get involved in politics. And politics, like religion, always follows the paper trail. Uppercut to the Gut Podcast, the cost of doing business with the God. We'll be right back. commercial why have you said that you won't fly commercial you said that it's like getting into a tube with a bunch of demons why do you think well, that no, no listen to me just saying not the people the main reason is because of the need if i flew commercial i'd have to stop 65 percent of what i'm doing that's really the main. isn't it true that you want to fly commercial so that you can fly in luxury how much money did you pay for tyler perry's gulfstream jet for example 
Well, for example, that's really none of your business, but... Isn't it the business of your donors? Listen, I paid. <laughs> you kind of caught me off guard here, okay? Certainly. Well, if you'd like to come out here, I'd like to give you a chance to, to catch your breath and, and have a conversation. We don't want to catch you off guard. I love Inside Edition. You got to get this now. Hey, you listen to me? My, my wife thinks Inside Edition is... <laughs> now... Thank you, Lord. Help me. Just let me, let me pray. This thing. Well, let me, let me just ask you a really simple question. A lot of people think it's unbecoming for a preacher to live a life of luxury and to fly around in private jets. What's your response to that? Very simple. It takes a lot of money to do what we do. We have brought over 100, let's see, this, the latest figures just came out, uh, 122 million people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you another example. Last May, I was scheduled for Lagos, Nigeria. That's a long ways. I had a week off, and I was scheduled for Peru. And I prayed about it, and I thought, I'm not missing that dedication in Jerusalem without the airplane that we have that I bought from Tyler Perry. And I didn't pay anywhere. And Tyler's one of the greatest guys. He made it. He made that airplane so cheap for me, I couldn't help but buy it. Well, my question then, well, well, okay, all right, but I want to get to the demons, because people are very concerned about that comment. Give me a chance here, Inside Edition. I love your eyes. And uh, here's what happened. We flew in 21 days, 70 hours, 40,000 miles, touched five continents, and preached face-to-face personally with 125,000 people. Do you ever do you ever use your private jets to go visit your vacation homes for example? Yes, I do. Okay. Again, getting back to the comment, you said that you don't like to fly commercial because you don't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. Do you really believe that human beings are demons? No, I do not. And don't you ever say I did. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Can you explain what you meant by that, yes. that, by that term then? Yes. Just, just explain, because it's really simple. You said you didn't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. What did you mean? The, well, let me ask you. Do you think that let people that fly commercial are demons? Give me a chance to talk, sweetheart. I'll explain this to okay. you. But it's a biblical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It doesn't have anything to do with people. People, I love people. Jesus loves people. People get pushed in alcohol. Do you think that's a good place for a preacher to be and prepare to go preach to a lot of people when somebody in there is dragging some woman down an aisle? It made me so mad to see that on television. I wanted to punch the guy out myself. I can't be doing that while I'm getting ready to preach. So you just don't like to be around the sinful people or the the hurtful people. Is that what you're saying? Not the people, baby. Not the people. Back during the days that we couldn't do anything else, we had to travel commercial. I've, when I went to Oral Roberts University, I flew for Oral Roberts. I'm a commercial pilot. You have how many planes? We have the Gulfstream, and we still have our Citation team. And then we have a little small airplane, but, but those are the two ones that we use, and we use them all the time. And other people use them, too. We have other ministries that, that use these. In the book of Ephesians, oh, God, I love this. We wrestle not with people, but with principalities and powers, unseen things. 
rulers of the darkness of this world. Talking about the devil, he's a very real devil, just the same as Jesus is a very real Lord. And, and I spent a lot of time on airlines. The main thing that happened was not, that wasn't the main reason. The main reason was I could no longer do what I called to do and be on the airlines. Besides that, I need my clothes when I get there. And, so, and you have some fancy clothes. I mean, I for a pastor, you are living yes. a life of luxury. Yes, you've I got am. great homes. You've got yes, great planes. Do. You, do you drive in limos? I'm and a very wealthy man. You're a very wealthy man. Yes. Yeah. And some and people I'm would not, say I'm that, is it, is it appreciated? May, may I add something to that? Uh, I, I, my wealth doesn't come from offerings alone. Because you I sell things, records. books and DVDs. Yes. And I have a lot of natural gas on our property. Didn't know that, did you, babe? Now I do. Yeah, you do. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I guess. It's wonderful for you. Back when, and I might add another thing, too. We invest from, uh, let's see, I don't know the exact number on last year yet, but it will run something in the neighborhood of 20, 25 million in the poor. Can't do that and be broke. Now, you hear that? That testicularless, gutless prick that you just heard bragging about his airplane, being asked about, I mean, he can't help but brag. That was Kenneth Copeland. Now, Kenneth Copeland is like Peter Popoff, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham. He's a televangelist. You go into 3ABN, he's like that other guy in Texas. What the fuck is that motherfucker's name? He, he's got He's got like a... Uh, like a $40 million stadium. It's a mega church, and he wouldn't open it when uh, for Texas flood victims. So then uh, a federal judge and a state judge forced him to open the shit so that people could find shelter when they're clamoring on the doors looking to get away from high waters. That's Kenneth motherfucking Copeland. He's an old bastard. He's one of those motherfuckers that goes and gets dumb old people from the South in the Bible Belt to go put their hands in the air. Oh, you see it all the time. Their hands are in the air and feel the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he'll even instruct you to touch the screen. And then comes the 1-800 number prayer line. There's a 1-800 toll-free line that then redirects you to a 1-900 prayer line. You have to buy his audibles, buy his book. He's always selling something. He's it, it, This is marketing. This is capitalism. And it's fucking most brilliant. This is a capitalist, not a fucking preacher. Jesus walked among the poor in the Bible. So why the fuck aren't these guys? Look at this guy. What was the last thing he said there? We invested $22 million in the poor. You can't do that if you're broke. Wait a minute. What do you mean invested $22 million in the poor? What do you mean invested 20 You don't invest in the poor. We invested in the poor. Oh, you caught me off guard there. Hold on a second. This guy sounds more nervous because he doesn't want Inside Edition to see what's in the limo they caught him hopping into. Probably doesn't want to go and see the harem of naked 18-year-old bitches this motherfucker just got off secret benefits. Ashley Madison, Leo List, and Backpage. You don't have a bunch of private compounds with military-grade private security, armed security protecting you at all motherfucking times unless you're trying to protect something.
your pastor down the street at the local church, who is a part of the same fucking hypocrisy, but nonetheless lives way more simpler than these motherfuckers. The mega churches, the huge stadium shit, that shit's got to go right there. Let's take a look a little bit further. What, take, take a walk with me. Let's let's take a look a little bit further at these, these sons of bitches making money. Because as soon as you go and see and accept the reality of how much money is in this bullshit, that's when we start to see how fucked up it is for people to start killing, dying, being involved in politics, or influencing dumbasses like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert to go and get into public office and put God and country together. You gotta go and analyze the source. Look, God and country is all cool if you wanna go and do that shit and be all American patriot, but you gotta go and look at the source. What God are we talking about? What methods are we talking about? Because right now we're looking at some dead kids in unmarked graves outside colonial residential schools. We're going to thread the needle here. You're going to see how it all comes back to that. But what I'm saying is, is that with the amount of money that flows through religious institutions and bodies, we have to go and figure out why are there bodies? Many of us attend church every week and faithfully give when the collection plate is passed through the congregation. Tens of millions of dollars are donated every year to churches in Charlotte alone. Investigative reporter Paul Boyd set out to find answers about that money from 12 of the largest churches in our area and discovered that pastor pay is shrouded in secrecy. Last year, Americans gave more than $122 billion to churches across our country. But how many of us truly know where that money goes or how much our church leaders are being paid? They have a right to know how the money is spent. They have a right to know how much their pastor makes. Tim Burns is a certified public accountant. He runs a Matthews-based nonprofit called Ministry Watch. Some people say a pastor's salary is none of our business. I couldn't disagree more. These pastors lead 12 of the largest churches in the Charlotte area. About 82,000 people attend services to hear them preach every week. Our investigation found that five of these churches alone generated $88 million in revenue last year. The IRS designates churches as not-for-profit. They do not pay taxes. And current federal law says churches are not required to disclose their revenue or the compensation of their their leadership. By comparison, almost every other nonprofit charity operating in America is required to provide that information by submitting an IRS 990 form. It forces the charity to have some level of financial disclosure. The 990 disclosure tells donors exactly how a charity spends money, including how much its leaders are paid. Churches have long been exempt from disclosing financial information. So in an effort to better better inform local donors, we asked 12 of Charlotte's largest churches to voluntarily provide us with their financial information. We called it a church transparency survey. I personally wrote the pastor of each church two months ago, asking them to provide basic information about church leadership and finances. Five of the churches responded with basic financial statements, including their total revenue. Last year, Transformation Church brought in $4.8 million from one location. Freedom House, $4.9 million from two locations. 
St. Matthew Catholic Church, 9.1 million from two locations. Forest Hill Church, 22 million from six locations. And Elevation Church, 47 million from 14 locations. Six other churches did at least communicate with me, but declined my request for any financial information. The Park Church, Central Church of God, St. Paul Baptist Church, Calvary Church, Mecklenburg Community Church, and Friendship Missionary Baptist church. Those churches told us their financial information was available, but to members only. One church, Hickory Grove Baptist, refused to even speak with Channel 9 about our transparency survey. We would love to see complete transparency. Ministry Watch works with churches across the country to promote better transparency. As for our survey question asking for the compensation of church leadership and pastors, not one single church was willing to disclose what individual leaders are paid, and none of the church pastors were willing to discuss the issue on camera. I believe that donors have the ultimate responsibility of giving to a church that is financially transparent and they deserve to know how much their pastor makes. And if they're not given this information, in our mind, that's a huge red flag. During previous congressional hearings, church leaders have argued that requiring them to disclose their finances would violate the First Amendment separation of church and state clause. This is starting to feel, <laughs> this is starting to feel a lot like our last episode, All Aboard the Cryptocurrency Express. If you tuned into our last episode last Wednesday, you would have went and seen I've called my bank. I spoke to the CEO of a cryptocurrency consultation company. We spoke live and recorded it. You heard it to a Forex company. Forex is a foreign exchange where they exchange currency, move money around in the same way that you would with cryptocurrency. And the funny thing is, none of them really wanted to disclose the truth. The pro cryptocurrency factions, they want to tell you everything you want to hear. The people that are against it, they won't even talk about it. The bank was very blunt. They're like, sorry, can't help you, fuck you. The foreign exchange people want to talk to you in person. They don't want to talk over the phone. They refuse to. It seems like it's the same way with religion. Seems like it's the same way when it comes down churches and mosques and whatever. You give money to your church or to your religious institution of your choice because you're under the impression that they help the poor. They feed and take care of those in need. They are a social community leader. That they're there for the greater good. Because since time immemorial, we've been led to believe that. But now looking at the evidence, seeing that the fear of death and the fear of an, in, of an inevitable hell or some type of torturous eternity has been the reason to enforce a fear to ensure both attendance, participation, and cash is a thing. It's this deception that churches do good. So let's give them our money. Let's support it. You think you're supporting the community. All you're doing is supporting the lifestyle of somebody who lives off your own dollar. And all they have to do is just get you to come on back in. It's marketing. That's it. It's that same assumption that when you put a little bit of money in that envelope, when you put some money in the collection plate, some coins, some cash, some whatever, Every time you walk through their doors on Sunday, goddamn morning, what you've managed to do is justify the existence of something that lives off of you. You know what we call that in the medical realm? We call it a fucking parasite. 
When something siphons your lifeblood, your energy, your T-cells, and it lives off of you, we call it a fucking parasite. Like a leech. It just attaches itself to you and consists off what meager excrements you put out. We got ourselves some parasites. But then you go and you get into some institutions, like the Catholic institution, a lot, well, actually a lot of religious institutions, primarily Christian, Catholic anyways. These institutions demand that their leadership, their pastors, preachers, archbishops, deacons, whatever, take a vow of celibacy because there's a general understanding that Jesus was celibate, that he didn't fuck anybody, which just doesn't make any sense because he was human. So why wouldn't he fuck anybody? He hung out with hookers all day. He hung out with everybody that nobody fucking liked. If you think Jesus didn't stick his dick in something, you're fucking out to lunch. I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus the Christ, the miracle worker. That's oh holy art thou. If you don't think for a minute that Jesus didn't fuck, you're out of your fucking mind. Get the fuck out of here. Leave the conversation. Because I guarantee you, he fucking did. You, you don't hang out with fucking prostitutes all day and not, <laughs> you know, but let's go and take a look at this. So the idea of Jesus being completely pure and a virgin from birth to death, never fucked anybody is essentially the motivation behind the whole vow of celibacy for preachers and pastors. But now they got all this sexual energy. It's apparently a sin to jerk off. They've been taking it out on your fucking kids and they've known about it for a long ass motherfucking time. Even with all that has been known about the Catholic Church's sexual abuse scandals, today's revelations about the historical role of Pope John Paul II in the elevation of a former archbishop accused of sexual abuse was stunning. A report from the Vatican found two popes either ignored, overlooked, or downplayed allegations when it came to taking tough action against Theodore McCarrick over two decades. Amna Navaz has the story. Judy, the 449-page report found that before John Paul II elevated Theodore McCarrick to Archbishop of Washington, he already was aware of multiple allegations against McCarrick. That included reports of sexual misconduct with another priest, sharing beds with seminarians, and anonymous letters accusing him of pedophilia with his nephews. But McCarrick denied those allegations, and he rose to become one of the most powerful and well-known Catholic leaders in the United States. The investigation also found that Pope Benedict delayed an investigation into McCarrick's behavior and that Pope Francis also did not act on allegations about McCarrick until 2017, believing that Pope John Paul II had already reviewed them. McCarrick was removed as archbishop in 2006, but wasn't defrocked, that is to say removed from the church, until 2019. Of this abuse scandal, the questions have always been, who knew and when did they know? And this report seems to say everyone knew. The men at the highest levels knew and they knew for years. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Uh, as, at least as early as the 1990s, uh, there was widespread awareness uh, in the hierarchy that these allegations had been made and that they were uh, continuing to be made over time. And what if we learned about any kind of common thread? As we just noted, three different popes knew about the allegations. One sort of believed McCarrick's denials over the allegations. The other chose not to look into it. Is there a common thread in that behavior? 
You know, McCarrick was very charismatic and he was extremely winning. And he was also a very gifted fundraiser who made lots of monetary gifts to other members of the church hierarchy. And the common thread in all of the authorities who failed to accurately investigate or adequately look into the allegations against McCarrick is that uh, they trusted him, they believed him, and they saw no reason to deal with what they assumed to be uh, conduct that only involved other adults, and in many cases, conduct they presumed to be long in the past. So as we mentioned, you've reported on some of the survivors before. Have you spoken with them today, and what's been their reaction to the report? I have, yes. Uh, one of the survivors that I spoke to who was abused by McCarrick uh, as a child, as a minor, uh, is is exhausted by this episode. The McCarrick uh, saga has stretched on now since 2017. So if you can imagine three years of um, media inquiry and, and then church inquiries of different stripes into what happened to this individual, I think it's easy to understand why he's completely exhausted at this point. It has seriously damaged the moral credibility of the Roman Catholic Church. The fact that the sex abuse crisis is still ongoing uh, at this point in time, when we first learned about it in 2002, I think is a, a serious, serious problem that compromises the church's ability to speak out on moral matters. And I think it's going to um, really put a shroud over the papacy of Pope Francis. There's over 30 years of backed up records and data that go on and indicate that pedophilia, sexual abuse, and sexual assault has been taking place in the Catholic Church. So what is it with these motherfuckers still in attendance, still tilting their head to the side during the sermon saying, this is nice. Like many things, we have to arrive at another conclusion soon. We have to start asking ourselves... For those of you who get it, for those of you who see what's wrong with this situation of whether it be touching altar boys or sisters of Mary, whether it be sticking your dick in residential students, oh, what's the matter? You don't like the way that sounds? Priests and nuns have been fucking children. That's the reality. How are you still sitting in a church head tilted to the side, listening and looking for a message and taking your children to this institution. Way I see it, correct me if I'm wrong, but typically when something kills, maims, or rapes people, I like to not take my children there or myself. You see, I can go to the circus and I can watch somebody do something with a tiger or a lion and have them balance a ball on their head, but guess what? Chances are if I stick my hand in the lion's cage, it's probably going to get fucking eviscerated. And then on top of that, now that I know that they've been treating the circus animals like absolute motherfucking garbage, I'm not going to a fucking circus anymore. It's fucking done. I'm done with circuses. Fuck it. Fuck you. Fuck them. Fuck everybody who still goes to a circus. Fuck that shit. Fuck it. So why would I still go to this circus? Why would I still go to this circus? That brings us now full circle back. What did these nuns and priests and archbishops and deacons, what did the papacy and the Vatican City know about this shit? The truth is everything. They've known about this. They know about shit. They let the fundraisers skate because they still believe in that old shit. I think that's what we'd find in the in the vault at the Vatican. I think we'd find all the records of the various people who have paid to get their way out of purgatory, which isn't real. 
You're born, you live, you die. Everything in between is motherfucking bonus. Stop putting your money in the collection plate because all you're doing is paying currently. If you go to church and you put your fucking tithings in there, the envelopes, the coins, the dollar bills into a fucking collection plate, all you're doing is paying for the defense fund, the legal defense fund. Every time one of these fucking pastors, preachers, nuns gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar, no pun intended. But now let's take a look at how we started our segment today. Let's take a look at these colonial residential schools. It is a seven decade old mystery that has brought Ontario's provincial police to these northern woods. What they are looking for are graves. We're gonna walk about a mile. That's a long way to be hidden, I guess. In 1941, three young boys went missing from here, never seen again. For years, the people of Fort Albany begged police to excavate what they believe is a 70-year-old crime scene. That's where we were told in an area that it was, so we're gonna make a wider perimeter so that we can search a little wider area than that. Time has hardened the unanswered questions into a deep and abiding suspicion of what really went on in one of Canada's most notorious Indian residential schools. It was called St. Anne's, funded by the government and for decades administered by the Catholic orders of the Oblates and the Grey Nuns. Generations of children from remote James Bay communities were forced to attend the school. Running away was not uncommon. The three boys ran away from the school one night in uh, early to mid-April, and it was determined that um, the boys had tried to cross the river late at night to get to the other side, and in doing so, there was a breakup of ice at that time, and that they were likely uh, washed out to sea. That is a 70-year-old official story, but Cree elder Ed Matatawaban says a community story handed down through generations is that the three boys returned to the school and were punished to death. It has to be looked at. It has to be investigated. The boys didn't die in the bush. They died under custody. The charge is really that, that people at the school, people associated with the church, murdered three boys. Yeah. Is that conceivable to you? Oh, yeah. The people that have uh, received uh, physical punishment, they know it's conceivable. There's so many things that happened to them, happened to us when we were here. 74-year-old Angela Shishish was just seven years old the first time she arrived at St. Anne's. Coming back was more than she could handle. Right now, it seems that I'm traveling back in my younger days. I could hear, I could hear the kids. Now I better, we better go back. You don't want to hear anymore? No, I'm getting, I'm feeling too weak. Okay. Let's go back then. Okay. I remember we used to go in another building to go and take our breakfast. I didn't want to eat the porridge because it was too thick, didn't taste right. And uh, the other girl that I saw, she got sick. Same thing happened to me. 
one of the helper, the big girls, was the one pulling my hair. Anna was standing beside her, grabbed a spoon and fed me my vomit. Couldn't swallow it at first. Couldn't swallow it. They called it a prison, and it must have felt like it. Instead of names, children were given numbers. Ed Matatawaban was number four. He lived at St. Anne's till high school, later becoming one of his community's leaders. The punishment he remembers most sounds almost unbelievable. We were electrocuted in the electric chair. That's right. He says the school had a homemade electric chair. It sat in the dormitory. If you don't behave, you will get electrocuted. Can you describe for me what the chair looked like? Uh, metal handles for the armrest. And I think there was a continuous flow from the right side to the left side so that the current would travel through and through our bodies. People would cry, people would squirm, and different reactions. There were priests, nuns, fear, isolation. St. Anne's was a petri dish for abuse. Angela Shishish remembers one priest in particular who would translate for the visiting dentist. In those days, you know how when they used to give you a needle to freeze, it was very painful, eh? Oof. My hands were tied up like this. So was my legs. Tied to the chair? Yeah. And he says I saw two, two of them that I had to fix. It was when the dentist left the room that the priest took over. That priest started to kiss all over my face. And I was scared. And I cried, and I cried, sitting in the chair like that. And the dentist came out. Are you afraid? You're crying? Are you afraid? And that priest keep on saying, yeah, afraid, afraid. Mr. Speaker, I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential schools. The treatment of children in Indian residential schools is a sad chapter in our history. In 2008, Canada's historic apology to residential school survivors came with a promise. In return for not suing the government, former students who could prove abuse would be compensated. The government would prepare a summary of what was known to have happened at each school. Adjudicators would decide what each claim was worth. As with most things bureaucratic, it got reduced to a formula. Points would be awarded for different kinds of abuse. Sexual abuse would get the most points of all. Based on that, St. Anne's survivors like Evelyn Korkmaz joined tens of thousands from across the country in filing claims. I thought, good, I could, you know, um, get some kind of compensation where um, somebody is acknowledging what happened to me. It was part of my healing process. As a child, Evelyn was raped at St. Anne's repeatedly. For hours, she detailed the abuse for her adjudicator, only to have her claim denied. He said he didn't believe you. He didn't believe a word I said, no. It was traumatizing, It, you know. I came home, I was shocked, um, couldn't believe that this was the process. According to the adjudicator's report, Evelyn's account of her sexual abuse was not credible. And nor, it seems, were other St. Anne's claims, which struck the former students as odd because there was a record of their abuse going back a decade and a half. In 1992, after years of silence, the community came together and decided it was time to start telling the stories of what went on at the school to police. 
This is the Ontario Provincial Police officer who heard the stories first. In 1992, Greg Delgadiz was just starting his policing career. He would come to know the St. Anne's community well. His investigation lasted seven years. What kinds of things were you hearing? Physical and sexual abuse that was taking place um, on students from staff at the school, some religious personnel, some civilian staff at the school. There were also allegations of um, physical and sexual abuse on children by other children. Widespread? It was widespread and it was systematic and it was um, out of control. By any standard, Delgadiz's investigation was massive, one of the first in Canada to examine residential school abuse. 700 former students and staff were interviewed, more than 70 alleged perpetrators identified. And yet only five would be convicted, despite all the testimonies police collected. Did I not believe them? Absolutely not. I believed every one of them. There was no issue with that. The Crown Attorney's Office spent nearly a year reviewing all allegations and deciding which ones would be um, marked for prosecution. And it was at the end of that that uh, those numbers showed up. The OPP investigation consisted of more than 12,000 documents, but after the trials, they were filed away. The police had them, of course. The government would later admit it had copies too. And yet when former St. Anne students started filing compensation claims, time and again, it seems no one knew what they were talking about. We were surprised that um, they didn't know the story. We told the story to the police. All of us thought we were telling it to the government, but they were coming to us as if they didn't know anything about what had transpired before. Indeed, the government's official summary of St. Anne's distributed to adjudicators said there were just four known incidents of abuse at the school, all of them physical, no known sexual abuse at all. It was as if Detective Delgadiz's massive investigation had never happened. Well, when you heard that, what did you think? Very disappointed in the whole matter. What kind of a cover-up is going on that they deny that there ever was even an investigation? I was on the investigation for seven years. Absolutely, there was an investigation. Children at St. Anne's Residential School suffered nightmarish levels of abuse, and yet the Office of the Attorney General suppressed thousands of pages of police evidence that identified those perpetrators. NDP MP Charlie Angus has been trying to get answers from the government for years. When I learned that there were thousands of pages of police testimony and documents and evidence and the naming of the perpetrators that had gone on to reveal, you know, this house of horrors, you expect as a Canadian that justice will be done, and then it never was done. Obviously, they were playing games. They didn't want to release the document. Because? It implicates too many people. Implicate people in government. It implicates people in, uh, in church. Why would you hide something if it doesn't implicate somebody? The ills done to Indigenous people over decades and centuries of colonialism in this country uh, are uh, shameful and are something that we need to learn from and move forward on. But the government has also spent something approaching $3 million fighting survivors of St. Anne's Residential School in court. In 2013, former students sued the government for access to documents they believe would prove their compensation claims documents collected as part of a seven-year police investigation. 
Investigative files aren't meant to be public. Few outside the police and government had ever seen this one. Until last year, when someone delivered CBC reporter Jorge Barrera a package. I received three CD-ROMs of these documents in a brown paper envelope that was slid across a food court table at an Ottawa mall. And I didn't know what was actually in there until I got back and I put it into my laptop and I realized that these were the OPP documents from the investigations into St. Anne's. Every single page almost in these documents was just an itemization of abuse and torture alleged by the people the OPP interviewed. And it was incredible. There's no respite from the darkness until you close it at the end. What the documents confirm is what St. Anne survivors had claimed and been told there was no evidence to prove. That electric chair, it existed. There's even a diagram. So this one has vomit, vomit. The forced chair. eating of vomit, there were dozens of accounts. Physical abuse was common at the school. A one-time principal, who later became bishop, was reported to have beaten a student unconscious with a whip. And then there was the sexual abuse that the government's official summary of St. Anne's concluded had never happened. According to the police documents, it was rampant. Children sexually assaulted by nuns, by priests, by school employees, and sometimes by each other. Of all the offenders, one of the worst was a priest who was at the school for nearly four decades, Father Arthur Lavoie. Which one is he? This one in the middle. What do you know about him? Uh, always hung around with the, the girls and boys, and always uh, you would start uh, touching it here, and then his hands would uh, fall down and um, touching you. He was always touching you. For many, it went a lot further than that. Lavoie groomed his victims, told them the sex he forced on them would ensure their place in heaven. The OPP recorded 313 complaints against Lavoie. He died before he could be charged. Is it credible, is it possible, that the people who ran the school did not know that this abuse was going on? I don't think that that's possible. Why? Um, because there were so many people doing it, and it was so out in the open. So all of this information the government had for years, and yet argued wasn't relevant to compensation claims. In the end, a judge told the government it was, and ordered the documents be turned over to the St. Anne survivors. But that didn't end it. The government is still fighting survivors in court today, as they demand their claims be reviewed. Some reconciliations, as Charlie Angus. They've gone to the wall with the most excessive legal arguments. To go after such marginalized people who are so clearly in the right uh, with a government that is so clearly committed to reconciliation tells me that the dysfunction in Canada about a justice for Indigenous people runs really, really, really deep. The agency responsible for compensation claims told us answering our questions would take too much work. Carolyn Bennett inherited the St. Anne's file from her conservative predecessor. She's on record as saying mistakes were made. So what's she prepared to do to make things right? Minister Bennett, hi, I'm Julian Finley from the Fifth. After refusing our request for an interview, we caught up with the minister in her constituency. Can you tell us why it is the government continues to fight these people in court when they are simply trying to get compensation? Well, as you know, um, it, we are not fighting them in court. They have decided to uh, to see us in court based on their lawyer's advice. We think no. they've been getting bad, bad advice. 
These are people who had information withheld from them by the government that they claim, they say has affected their ability to file proper claims and that they're owed money. What is wrong with reviewing? Why can't you at this we moment say... We are working with all of the St. Anne's survivors to make sure that they get exactly what they deserve and more if possible. They don't see that. They see the, I, the government fighting them yet again. I think if you look at the Justice's statement on why there has been such difficulty, it is not on behalf of the government. Ms. Bennett, why can't you just simply, as the Minister, say enough of this? We've been fighting too long. Don't, why don't you as Minister say, we want to review this and we're going to review this and we're going to do right by these we people. We are reviewing it and we want to be at the table. That's where this will be solved. We don't want to be Why in court. Why do these people not know that? We don't want to be in court. They want They want to sit down with you. We, and we, want, we want them to get everything they deserve. Betrayal permeates everything when it comes to St. Anne's. Betrayal by government, betrayal by the Catholic Church. To this day, the Oblate order that ran the school has never admitted abuse happened here. And today, the sense of betrayal continues. The OPP search last fall lasted less than a day and found nothing. The mystery of the three missing boys endures. They ran. They ran away. And uh, what they left behind was a mess. I don't think we will ever recover in our own lifetimes what happened. They're still continuing to hide it until there's nobody left to fight, until all of us are gone. <sighs> what do I even fucking say at this point? St. Anne's is one school. There are thousands, thousands of these schools all over Canada. You know, typically we like to point our fingers at America Looking at the slave trade, America's original sin, we look at its treatment of Mexicans on Bloody Sunday, the Tulsa Massacre. We like to look at a whole bunch of other countries. Canada loves to do it too. It loves to look down its nose and say, hey, we're the nice ones. Our country is good. We're a secular sovereign country that's tolerant of all people, forgiving, and we do the right thing all the time. And typically, Canadians love to invoke how good they are. I'm not saying they're not. Go to any cemetery and you'll see row after row of Canadian armed forces that went head-to-head -head with Nazis. Of course, Canadians have it in them to be good. But like all good things, sometimes appearances may be deceiving. We've had this thing going on. It has come to light we have been digging up thousands of bodies of children in only a handful of locations. What are we doing about it? Nothing. We're doing nothing about it. This Canadian government, liberal or conservative, we've had both conservative and liberal swinging governments over the last X number of years since a lot of this information has come to light. What have they done about it? What has the Canadian government done about it? Fucking nothing. They like to talk about doing it. They like to put resolutions in place. They like to say, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to do the good thing because we're good people. But look at how deeply entrenched this conspiracy is. It's so bad that there are serving members of government now that were involved in this situation, they're not going to do anything about it because the Canadian government doesn't fucking care. 
Why would they? The Canadian government is made up of politicians. Politicians care about voters. And typically, people who have had a Catholic priest's dick in their ass don't leave the fucking house. They live in a bottle. They live in a deluded world. They live in their pain. They don't fucking vote. But you do. You fucking vote. What are you going to do about it? Uh, I've talked about our analytics, about who's listening to this show. I've been caught by surprise. Even just this week, we found that 3% of our listeners are in Panama. What's up? Panama, Brazil, Sweden, Norway, Germany, the U.S. and Canada. U.S. and Canada being our biggest. I always say this. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and wherever you're listening, you could have been anywhere, but instead you're with us, and for that I thank you. Right now I got something else. A request. Whoever you are, wherever you are, however you're listening to us, whatever you're doing, hit the share button. Go on Google. Start doing some research. Share some articles. Make this, help make this shit known. And instead of Canada pointing its finger at what other countries are doing, it's time that Canada goes and takes responsibility and accountability for what the fuck is going on in its own yard. Because we know what's in Canada's own yard. A bunch of dead kids. Dead aboriginal kids. As it stands there and says, uh, uh, we're, uh, uh, we're going to, uh, a, uh, er, uh, we're going to, uh, resolute and, uh, uh, we owe an apology and, uh, as they sit there and engage in the politics of apologetics, that same government is working to countersue and fight the very victims of these fucking mobile Arkham asylums. They're looking to fight against the very fucking thing they're saying that they're apologizing for. Because they don't want to lose no money needlessly. They want to make sure that, uh, you know, only unless you got raped. Is that the only time that, that, you know, it really counts? I need a drink after this one. I need a drink after this one because this is tough. We try to imagine all the best things for our kids. We try not to think about all the terrible things, all the monsters that are out there in this world. We like to think that those monsters are predictable, that we're going to see them coming, that we know what they dress like because of some shit we saw on fucking TV. Turns out those fucking monsters are down on one knee with your children saying our father. Turns out those monsters are asking you, you dumb motherfucker you, to go and do some penance and an act of contrition and say some Hail Marys and say your prayers. They come into your house and bless your house. They give you communion. Everybody in the Catholic Church knows about this shit. The pedophilia in America, in Canada, overseas, it's widely known. When the fuck are we going to hold these people accountable? When the fuck are we going to start doing the right fucking thing? Doing the thing that they tell us they're doing. It's time to exercise all fucking demons. In Oxigno, in Nome de Padre, in Fragueri, in Spirito Santos. I mean fucking execute them. Who are these people? 
expose them, get them out, put them in prison, stop protecting each other. It's just old boys club shit. And as for the Canadian government, right now the Liberal Party is sort of the main swinging party. It's a minority government, but you know, Canada typically is relatively liberal. Canada's liberal and apologetic just for show. It's apologetic and claims to do the right things just to get a round of applause and another cup of coffee on the world stage. Canada says one thing and does another. The hypocrisy under both conservative and liberal governments makes me want to take a fucking shit. This is 100% a cover-up. By definition, no questions asked. A cover-up that involves the Vatican, the Pope, the Catholic institution as a whole, every single church on every single corner, on every single map of every region and every postal code. And of course, it's Buddy, the Canadian government. And let's not forget who's the head of state of the Canadian government. Who's on all of its coins? Her Majesty the Queen. You ain't gonna tell me that Her Majesty ain't in the know about this. You ain't gonna tell me she does. It's her business. She's the head of state of Canada. Canadians have a certain amount of money that goes to the fucking Buckingham Palace. Goes to the head of state. She's the ultimate trademark of Canada. Pope Francis. He's supposed to be one of the better popes. He's not doing anything about it. He won't even apologize for this. He's recognized this shit, but he mums still the word. And it's been several months now. We're, there's only more bodies coming to light. Just this week, another 135. We're going to be at over three to 4,000 bodies if the rate at the current trending rate. And again, there's thousands of these schools. The reports. Reading those reports... Uh, not all of them are released. They're absolutely absurd. Little children or teenagers or even young adults trying to go and make a police report. 366 reports out of just St. Anne's, which is insane. And there's only more police records for the various other residential schools coming to light soon. I got sick. I got a little depressed just reading them. We were picked three at a time, to go downstairs. There was a cellar there. We had to sit along the heater. He, in brackets, the, pr the priest, spread my left leg apart. He'd have his mouth over my penis. I could hear the other girls crying while they watched. He would wait for... Fuck's sakes. He would wait for me to fall asleep. I was seven years old at the time. He masturbated me. One claim after another, he ejaculated me. This person pulled down my pajamas. He would try to force his penis in my mouth. The man pried my fingers off my bloomers. Then you get the coddling from the nuns and the other priests. Telling them you were one of my best boys. Whispering it into the ears. As if though they're satisfied. I see the photos of these young children that were turned into victims. I see their young little faces and, and I know surely there is no God here. Saints didn't come down. Saint Christopher medallions didn't save them. 
Confession didn't set them free. Acts of penance, communion, did not grant them solace. Instead, they were granted malice. They're just waiting. The government, the church, they're just waiting until the last of them are dead. The last of these sick pedophile fucks. Waiting until they're dead before they're going to finally issue maybe a recompense in the form of something monetary. Money won't fix this. Justice will. And there is absolutely no justice here. Nobody's coming down from a cross. Pray the rosary all you want. Ain't gonna go back in time and save those kids. That's how we know there's no goddamn God. Because he's something as incredible and powerful that created everything. Is omniscient and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. Could have turned those sick sons of bitches into dust, but he didn't. Could turn back the clocks. Turn back time and go and set this whole thing right. So we wouldn't even be sitting here having this discussion. But he's not. There is no God. There is no salvation. There is no mercy. The only thing that happens is what can and what will. Even our own justice system isn't trying to put a stop to this. It's fighting the survivors for any kind of compensation. Which still, again, as I said, money isn't going to fix this. Go ahead. Pick up that rosary. Cross yourself. Sit down, stand up. Sit down, stand up. Just make sure that you look twice when you sit down on that pew. You never know what happened there before you got there. And that is the cost of doing business with God. Your dignity, your hope, and your life. Up next is the last word.
any last words? For tonight's last word, in past episodes, we've discussed personality traits and behaviors and examined a lot of uh, various patterns of behavior in our modern times, uh, whether it be episode three, stop being yourself, episode four, everything you know is wrong, whether it be the personality takedown episode, and even as we've gone along the way, we've taken a look at things like chronic narcissism and we've attacked it quite fairly but i think now is time for the uppercut to the gut podcast's greatest challenge of all time and that is the takedown and the recognition of the biggest narcissist of all time as a matter of fact the greatest narcissist in history as we know it so big is this narcissism and ego that it's the greatest ego ever sold i'm talking about god It's one thing to go and unplug from people, but let's go and take a look briefly at exactly what God has done for us. I want you for a moment to imagine that you come home to your significant other, your children, or your parents, somebody that you care about and somebody that you love. As you sit there and you're talking about your day, you realize that they haven't responded to you at all. They don't say anything. In fact, they say nothing. You like to think that they're listening to you, but you don't really know for a fact that they are. At the end of the day, you then start looking around and you realize you can't find them. You look across the street and you go and you see that a house is on fire. Down the street, someone else is throwing cash in the air. You go into your own back alley to go and see somebody poking through the garbage. And then you come back inside to see your significant other and realize that they lit the house on fire, gave the person the bag of money, and created the economic situation for the person digging through your garbage to end up in their particular situation. All the while, you still tried to maintain a healthy, happy relationship with this person, and they won't even fucking speak to you. A lot of times we'd call that living with a psychopath. Sometimes we'd call it just a toxic relationship if you only focus on your personal interactions. But when you go and you take into consideration everything that God is attributed to, oh, thank God that worked out. Thank God when everything was good. Oh, it must be something I did or it must be something evil that gave me this bad luck. Is there anything more toxic and narcissistic than the relationship between God and man? And remember, I don't think there's a God. You do. What I'm saying is, is that throughout history and in every scripture or text, of course, it's all man-made, But from every scripture or text, every example that we have of God, we end up with this incredibly narcissistic behavior. Narcissistic, toxic, destructive behavior. People die in the Bible. People are wiped out for just being themselves. But none of that seems to happen here. And when we go and we take a look at these things, we look at what people do for God, for this thing they've never talked to strapping C4 to themselves, thinking that they're going to blow themselves up and end up in paradise with 72 virgins, flying planes into the Twin Towers, upside-down crucifixions during the Spanish Inquisition, beheadings in the name of Apollo, blood sacrifices in front of the temples of Coetnaclan. Doesn't matter what faith you had, what time period you existed in, the belief of a higher divinity seems to get people to do dumb shit. Everything except for what its core values are asking you to do. I don't understand anymore, nor do I care, as to why all these religions, which in some instances make a better person, flip-flop onto the other side and go and make a shitty one. It's said that gods often behave like the people who worship them. 
So it's no wonder that in one part of the world, God thinks women should be covered from head to toe with with only their caterpillar eyebrows poking out. And on the other, God and country went and gave Michael Flynn an AR-15. How is it that he was in a church the other day? A church that gifted him an AR-15, to which he then got applause and laughter by saying, I should take that to Washington and see if I can find somebody. What was he suggesting? And how is it that people who believe in thou shalt not kill just laughed at a guy who has very heavy influence in both government and foreign politics, who just cracked a joke about killing people in Washington as we're we're investigating January 6th Capitol Hill insurrection. Bible in one hand, 45 in the other. Truly, Jesus would never stand for that. Truly, Allah, the reflection of Judaism and Christian tenets, would not approve of jihad either. But yet it's motherfuckers like Muhammad that went and made it happen. The things that people do in the name of God is absolutely absurd. And we'd have to go and ask that if God is real, how could he possibly permit this? Now we come back and come full circle looking at what we've been discussing tonight. The absolute abhorrent shit that has taken place in Canadian residential schools to Aboriginal children. Ripped from their homes, shoved into bunks, abused physically, mentally, sexually, force-fed vomit, tortured, all manners of pain and apathy subjugated upon them. And then there's the Canadian society who looks at these very marginalized individuals and scoffs at them when we can't figure out why they're talking to themselves, why they're these old folks laid out on their front porches going, drinking themselves half to death, drowning their sorrows, numbing their mind and body, which is already numb to the world to begin with, in the world of drugs, alcohol, and toxic behavior and unhealthy lifestyles, they finally feel something. And here is the general Canadian populace looking at people like that, pointing their finger and making judgments, even as the very country to whose flag they salute and whose cultures they celebrate are solely responsible for the state of the people whose fingers they point at. Where did this start? Start with In this case, eh, it didn't start with government. Didn't start with John A. Macdonald. No, no, no. It didn't start with colonial schools. This is something that has been going on for a long time and in various religions. During the War on Terror, as they looked for weapons of mass destruction, Village after village came across various branches of Taliban and Al-Qaeda who kept and maintained underage children as brides, including young boys, as brides for men. These gesticulating bearded sons of bitches could go and get a regular wife, but no, it had to be boys. Even though the religion forbids it, it still happens. Even Al-Qaeda denies this thing, but the evidence is overwhelming. We've seen Islam subjugate Africans to slavery, and even right now, Arab to African slavery is a thing. In the modern era, in the 21st century, 2021, as news reports in Libya have seen West Africans enslaved, religion being used as the excuse. As we mentioned earlier, we've seen children given up to the church simply because the family is too goddamn poor, and it was a way to get out of purgatory. What were they subjected to? The same laws of celibacy existed, but the credibility 
of the young clergymen and the young boys subjugated to said behavior would not have existed as it does today. As we move forward, we keep finding more and more evidence of people placed in vulnerable positions, desperate, seeking salvation, willing to do whatever it takes. And the second and third generations, or sometimes even the new recruits, find themselves caught up in scenarios that they didn't expect that they'd be in. Now, I know that like all people, and like all situations and scenarios involving human beings, there's good people and there's bad people. But we gotta start to come to face facts. When it comes down to religion, the premise of all arguments that come from these religious institutions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, Scientology, Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, any of the smaller ones out there, Westboro Baptist Church, whatever. The general principle and tenet that they hold dear is that their message comes directly from a divine being. And whatever policies they put in place, whatever behaviors they enact, are excusable. Look no further than Malcolm X. Malcolm X, a heroin dealer, knucklehead, turned reformed member of the Nation of Islam, went on to be one of the greatest African-American speakers in American history, an incredible orator who fought for the cause of African-American civil rights, gunned down by the very Nation of Islam that he chose to align himself with simply because he found out the secret of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and that is that he had a ton of babies out of wedlock, and Elijah Muhammad just found a way to go and justify that. I must spread my seed. I must fulfill prophecy. But didn't pay a goddamn dime. Followed none of the tenets of his own religion. Hypocrisy. And Malcolm X exposed it. He found it out. He called it out. And it got him killed. He was not gunned down by white people. He was gunned down by religious people. It's time for us to start to wake up. We discussed earlier that church attendance across the board is down. Communication, high-speed communication and P2P technology has allowed people to communicate ideas and notions at a faster rate than ever, which has allowed to dispel old habits. Some people just don't want to go to church. Some people don't want to go and put their ass up in the air five times a day while facing east and covering up their wives from head to toe. People are moving away in droves from religion. So be it. Let's just make sure that whatever we do next is not as bad as this. Whoever you are, wherever you are, however you're listening to us, you could have been anywhere, but instead you decided to spend time with us. And for this, we thank you. I do encourage you, the listeners, where you are, to take this particular episode rather seriously, a little more than we typically do. I know we like to roll around and rib at the news and jab at dumb people. Who doesn't? But... In this particular case, the dumb people is almost everybody. Please do look into this. Keep up with the news story. Watch, wait, keep your eyes on the Canadian government. Keep your eyes on the Vatican and the Pope. And let's see how he responds to this in the coming few months. It is now July of 2021. I look forward to referencing this episode and hopefully having some sort of breakthrough to go and talk about, maybe even in another Positive Vibes episode. Until then, please look out for each other, look out for yourself, don't trust anyone 100%, and do not be fooled 
by something too easy. I'm the infallible D-dubs, and this is the Uppercut to the Gut podcast. Be sure to check us out this upcoming Friday with the return of the Friday Payday Boogie. And next week's episode, another installment of the Who's the Greatest MC episode. It's going to be Who's the Greatest MC puts the spotlight on Eminem. It's a huge career there. And the following week after that, the following Wednesday for our content, regular weekly content, is going to be a rough one to go through. This is going to be treading through some rough waters here. Uh, the episode is going to be entitled Shitty Relationships and Their Even Shittier Attempts at Keeping Them Together. Until then, this was the last word. Uppercut to the Gut Podcast. Hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I want to hear from you. Shit, my phone number's up there. You can even call us. Make sure you stay tuned. I want to know what you want to hear. I want to know what you're up to. I want to know what you want to talk about. Reach out. Tell me. I'm listening. Until then, good night. The many miles we walk The many things we learn
that's the way 